welcome to the Swansea Cyber Law and Security Podcast. I am Sara Kukaya, a doctoral researcher at Swansea University. Hi, I'm Patrick Bishop. I'm a senior lecturer in law at the College of Law and Criminology, also at Swansea University. Welcome to episode one. Today is the 26th of May, 2017, and it is very sunny in Swansea. Um, I would also like to add that the views expressed on this podcast do not represent those of our employers. So I think the first bit of news that we absolutely have to talk about is the WannaCry outbreak of the past, uh, was it last week? I think it was the week before that. It was the 12th of May that I think it was launched. Um, So, yeah, I mean, yeah, let's start with the impact. I mean, it was a pretty massive ransomware attack. Might it be useful to mention what ransomware is? Maybe those who don't know. Yeah, okay, yeah, let's do that. So, ransomware, it's it's a malicious piece of software, which when a computer is infected, then... Um, encrypts the files, so that means it uses like a secret key to scramble up the, the, the computer files, which are basically made up of zeros and ones, <laughs> right? Um, so the the it scramble jumbles them up so that they're they're rendered unusable uh, by the user. And then what they do is they demand a payment. Uh, so quite often they will lock your screen with a a, a message, which is like the the ransom request um, and demand a payment in in bitcoins uh Bitco- if you're gonna ask me what bitcoin is i'm gonna struggle to <laughs> well i think all we need to say for present purposes is bitcoin is a, a, a virtual currency yeah um that is not always but generally used for illegitimate uh, purposes and i believe it's very difficult to trace yeah uh, who the actual owner of a particular bitcoin is i think that's enough yeah, yeah. For today's yeah. discussion. Yeah, so so these hackers um allegedly um have received three hundred and fourteen payments um as of uh, a little bit earlier today. That's about forty nine about fifty bitcoins, which is equivalent to more or less hundred and twenty thousand dollars or a hundred sorry, a hundred thousand and eight hundred pounds. I always struggle saying numbers. <laughs> um, just, just over a hundred thousand pounds. Oh yeah, there we go. Over a hundred thousand. So a bit of money, um, but I guess more impressively is how widespread this piece of malware was. It, it, according to the BBC, it affected about one hundred and fifty countries, and as of yesterday, that amounted to about three hundred thousand computers around the world. And more importantly, it affected 61 NHS trusts in the UK and pretty big companies like the Spanish Renault factory in... uh, Sorry, no, not Spanish. uh, (laughs) French Renault factories. Obviously, they're French. Um, The uh, Russia's interior ministry, some Spanish telecom company Telefonica, which is a pretty major one, some gas companies in Spain as well, and also the US FedEx delivery company. I think in in the UK certainly the biggest story was the effect that it had on the NHS, wasn't it? Yeah. And for those who didn't know already, it was really demonstrated how reliant the NHS is on uh, cyber yeah. systems and computer yeah. systems, Absolutely. not just for information and data, but 
the machines, the MRI, CT scans, etc., all use yeah, uh, yeah, software yeah. which was affected by this. So it was a bit of a, an eye opener. I suspect for many members of the public just how reliant uh, the NHS is on on, on information technology yeah, yeah. systems. Sorry, I. No, no, no. Let you get I, on with absolutely. it. Absolutely. <laughs> no, I guess like the first thing I guess to talk about uh, in terms of WannaCry is how it actually spread. Um, because what I thought was really interesting was how the media coverage straight away they were talking about phishing emails, and that kind of brings me onto the first story that I wanted to discuss because it, actually it wasn't phishing emails. <laughs> That wasn't the way it was spreading at all. And I'll tell you why that's relevant to Wales in particular. Uh, but perhaps it would be useful to say how it actually spread. So the ransomware, the way it spread was there was a, a bot, so like a basically a software robot type thing, that was crawling the web to find computers or computer systems that, that had a particular vulnerability. Um, and that vulnerability was it was called Eteral Blue um, is, is something that was made public by a hacking group um, last month called Shadow Brokers and they, they got this from um, allegedly from the NSA so oh we should say the NSA is the national security agency in the US in the US yeah, yeah of course so yeah so they, they they got this we're assuming it was leaked from within the NSA and they made it public to kind of illustrate how the NSA are stockpiling these vulnerabilities mm -hmm. perhaps to use against you know their targets yeah uh, and I'd say another feature of this story was the head of Microsoft was very very critical of the yeah process use you where the NSA will stock these uh, malicious software yeah um for whatever purpose and don't actually inform them yeah, of their uh, yeah, existence yeah. yeah so so this is how it was spreading so we, got, we had this thing out on the internet looking for systems that were vulnerable um, and it it mostly affected uh, Windows 7 systems this is a, another thing the media misreported so there was this whole thing about XP systems being vulnerable, which then, of course, meant that companies and people out there who were running Windows XP were probably all panicking mm. and, you know, responding accordingly. And then it turns out it was actually 98% was Windows 7, uh, was reported recently by Ars Technica. Yeah. Which you so, should say that Windows 7, though it's not as old as Windows XP, it's still yeah. a very old operating still, yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah, so the result of this kind of misreporting was, was got this uh, story here from publictechnology.net, which reports that Powers County Council actually shut down their entire email. Like they shut down their emails for a week based on this false intelligence that, that you know, it was spreading via emails, via phishing emails. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, it. Had to be in Wales, didn't it? <laughs> I wonder what that did to their productivity. Because I don't know about you, but whenever the email goes down, oh my god, it's chaos. I, I, I'm the opposite. I seem to get more work oh, do done you? rather oh, okay. than constantly checking my emails. So we, I'm not oh, sure. Okay. Where yeah. where do we think, or what do you think the reason was for that misinformation? What was the source? If you know, you might not of the yeah. original 
report that it was an XP vulnerability rather than a Windows 7 vulnerability. I think what happens is you'll get like, I don't know exactly who the source was, but I think the way it happens is you get, you've, you've got a big dis misalignment like between the, the mainstream media and then yeah. the actual cyber security, the techie the people. Techie people. Yeah. And the media will pick up on these things and then they don't actually, you know, double check their yeah. claims and, and then it just kind of spreads, isn't it? I, I, I don't actually know who, who started the And rumor. I'm sure... <laughs> so-called fake news yeah uh, it's yeah. something that we might visit in future yeah, uh, podcasts. Yeah, yeah yeah but I mean maybe being a bit cynical here but I guess maybe you know because if you're a cyber security provider and one of your clients has been affected I suppose it's a lot safer to say it was one of the users who caused the problem yeah. than to admit that there's some kind of bug with the system yeah. that you're supposed to be patching and securing isn't it so i guess yeah so so microsoft just to make it clear we're not aware of this no they, they were aware they were aware they were aware and was yeah. there a patch there was a patch okay <laughs> the patch was released in february right and um i guess that kind of brings us on to the the, the next thing which is uh, the impact on the NHS but um, so there was a patch uh, but it was only made available to people who paid for an enhanced kind of service yeah um, and funnily enough the, the the spread of the ransomware was stopped uh, accidentally by this right. guy uh, which is another interesting feature of this story uh, so some cybersecurity researcher kind of discovered that within the code within the code of this uh, uh, malicious uh, program, um, there was a, a URL like a, a domain that it would the the program tried to connect to, and he checked the URL and realized that it wasn't registered to anyone, so he registered it himself. And the reason he did that was because he was going to try and measure how many people were getting infected right. by seeing how many yeah. hits he got on this uh, domain. Uh, but then, unbeknown to him, that kind of worked like a kill switch on oh. the malware. So every when, when the malware got into your computer and it installed itself, the first thing it did was try to connect to this domain. And if it didn't connect, then it would continue to run. But if it did, it would stop. Okay. So making the domain live <laughs> so, yeah, actually killed the system. Killed, actually killed the spread of it, which mm. is uh, quite funny. And then, of course, like the UK tabloid press went absolutely nuts about mm. this guy. And I feel really sorry for him. Um, something about him failing his GCSEs or whatever. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, all this crap. <laughs> Um, anyway, so, uh, uh, so that's how it was spread and how it was kind of contained. So, what do you think? Do you think, in terms of the responsibility now, looking at like the impact on the NHS, so we've got like 61 NHS mm. trusts that were affected by this. What, what are your thoughts on, you know, who's responsible? I mean, should the government had paid the extra money? Should Microsoft have made it a, the patch available? It's a very difficult question <laughs> to answer. First of all, I think we should say in this particular context, the specific challenges with the NHS. One, I'm 
not entirely certain of this, but I think there might be a view that some people say that any money that goes into the NHS is better spent on nurses, doctors, no yeah. political party. Yeah. Right in their manifesto, we're going to invest in IT systems. It's always more doctors, more nurses. Yeah. Uh, so there's obviously a political dimension there. Uh, but also even when it comes to IT and systems, there's, there's problems with updating it. Uh, because obviously that leads to sometimes gaps in provision, uh, you know, which is if you're someone who's waiting for a CT scan because you've got a potentially malignant tumour, yeah. etc., then even a gap of a few days can be very traumatic to you. So they're naturally hesitant to change these systems. You know, and of course there's also a hardware problem with some of the machines they got just don't have the operating power to cope with new systems and anyone who uploads the latest version of Microsoft's operating system will realise the damage that does to a computer in terms of its speed because it takes up so much more um, uh, data. So there's particular issues there which make it understandable, not maybe not acceptable, but certainly understandable and the NHS several years ago uh, I think it was under Gordon Brown's premiership, it was certainly under the Labour government, uh, spent literally billions on uh, a state-of-the-art IT system which was supposed to be the largest uh, non-military database in the world. And it was discontinued after several months because it just didn't work. So there's a natural reluctance for the NHS to get involved in these large-scale IT problems. But then in terms of the specific responsibility, one view is, well, it's the NHS fault. You could say, who the hell still uses Windows 7 these days? Um, But obviously it wasn't just the NHS, because you you mentioned um, DHS. Was it DHS? Um, FedEx. FedEx. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Other delivery services are available, of course. (laughs) Um, And you mentioned Renault, that famous Spanish uh, car (laughs) manufacturer. (laughs) so obviously it wasn't just the NHS, but it's a difficult issue in terms of the responsibility in that there was an inherent problem with this product. It wasn't like other products. You know, you buy a car and in five years' time uh, it needs a new gearbox. Well, that's wear and tear. Yeah. If you buy a car and there's an inherent problem with a part, they yeah. will recall that car and will change that part for you. Yeah. And it seems to me that this falls more into the latter category than the former, in that it wasn't just that the system became outdated and, and useless. There was an inherent problem within the system. Would it have been there from the beginning? You're yeah. more technically minded than me. Would yeah. it, was it something that was a problem that had been there from its inception? I believe so. Yeah. That's my understanding. I'm also not that technical, oh, okay. but my understanding is that, you know... Yeah. So I, my view would or a, a view if, is that well if, if there's an inherent problem with this it was their responsibility to deal with it so when they knew that there's a problem then when they developed a patch I would certainly think that there was an obligation on them if not legal certainly moral yeah. to contact all the people who use the system and say there's a problem with this operating system here's how to, to uh, fix it so I think it, there's a responsibility on both sides here. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. on an individual level, you could argue we, we all have a responsibility to uh, 
keep our systems up to date. Yeah. You know, when you see the annoying updates available, don't ignore it. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. install the update because that will often involve patches and bug fixes, etc. Um, so there's a responsibility in us, but equally, if the you know the the IT providers, the likes of Microsoft, Apple, etc., are aware of this, I think they have an obligation to tell us yeah. about that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's so, actually some conspiracy theory out there that uh, this whole thing was a cybersecurity industry ploy to get people to update their systems. Well, it, it, <laughs> you know, there's there's, there's, there's a view that, uh, yeah. that um, there's a very famous piece written in the Harvard Law Review some years ago. And at the time, the view was so controversial that the person who wrote it wouldn't give his or her name. It was, it was authored by an anonymous person. Right. Um, so it's very difficult to quote in, um, <laughs> in journal papers. But anyway, and, and his view was that these wide-scale attacks, vulnerabilities, are actually a good thing. Uh, and that... What they do is they thinks of the internet as a sort of immune system or the body, and when it's attacked, the body then knows where that vulnerability is and can sort that out. Yeah. And so his or her view is that these things are a good thing, uh, so that they encourage people, as you said, to <laughs> yeah. update their software. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and I'm sure many people who might have been using Windows Seven. I've now thought twice about that and yeah, hopefully yeah. upgraded to a, a a newer version. So, you know, it could be one of those things that it, it's it's not all bad, that at least it's concentrated the mind. And, of course, this is one that, yes, it causes a lot of disruption. Uh, it causes a lot of distress to people, particularly with the NHS connection. I'm dare say it costs a lot of money to fix. But it wasn't a catastrophic yeah, a, yeah. Attack in that mm. sense. So, you know, there may be some good in it if people do realise, because the problem is, is the story's overtaken with other stories. And, of course, they, you know, this week when we talk in, uh, there's been recently a, uh, the, the major yeah. terrorist attack in, 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 in yeah. Manchester. So yeah. things get move in and out of the public consciousness. So it may not be a bad thing that every so often something like this happens yeah, which right. concentrates the mind it's, it's, a, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. A, it's a view it's but, a controversial view um, but people use in other contexts and this is totally gone off on a tangent but in environmental law yeah, uh, it's often seen that a, you know, a periodic environmental disaster is not all bad because it leads to tightening of the law enhanced um, yeah, public awareness, uh, public awareness yeah. enhanced uh, enforcement of the rules which exist, yeah, uh, yeah. etc. And I think you can draw a direct an analogy, yeah, uh, with that. Of course, that's absolutely no consolation to the people who've been affected no, no, by it. Yeah. But on a sort of bigger global picture, it, it's not always a, an entirely bad thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was just looking at this um, article on um, Wired by. Someone I believe must be a compatriot of mine, Joao Medeiros. So it's called um, "When a Cry Laid Bare: The NHS Outdated IT Network," and he was uh, talking to um, Shafi Ahmed, who's a surgeon at Royal London um, in East London, and um, uh, he's got a, a quote from him here. He says, "We're heavily dependent on having patient records available in electronically and ac- accessing CT scans, MRI." 
and he says we, we went back to using paper to process patients, some operations that relied on imaging were cancelled altogether. So it had a really um, uh, you know, visible impact, I guess, on, on yeah. some trusts. Um, and it, funny you should mention that um, um, uh, project that aimed to digitise uh, patient records across mm. the NHS. They, they mentioned that in this, in this article as well, and uh, they touch on um, just how much money these systems uh, cost. Um, so one, one of the major uh, providers uh, for the NHS um, IT is a company called Cerner, which is a Kansas-based company. Uh, they supply software to many hospitals around the world, including Royal London, uh, that this article is focused on. Um, and I believe they, there's a quote here somewhere, which I now cannot find. Uh, oh yeah, according to data obtained by Citrix via Freedom of Information request, uh, this was published back in December, uh, that 9 out of 10 NHS trusts are still running Windows XP, although we now know that mm. it was actually Windows 7. It was the so ironically, you might have yeah. been better protective yeah, of XP yeah, than yeah, 7. 7. <laughs> um, and that the NHS um, has paid... So Microsoft so stopped providing extended support for XP in April 2014, and I believe it's um, other legacy systems as well. Um, but continued to provide the NHS with updates and security patches until a year for a year. And that extended service for a year cost the NHS 5.5 million pounds. So, you know, it is a lot of money. Um, but I suppose on the other side, in the, the grand total of expenditure on the NHS, 5.5 million True. is a very, very small amount. But why spend it? If you shouldn't have to, yeah. you could almost say if you were being really provocative that this is so, a, a form of legitimate ransom. In that, yeah, we've we've you've bought the system off us, you've used it, it now doesn't work properly unless we sell you this patch. So it, it yeah. it's almost a form of legitimate extortion. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, one some could argue. Maybe there needs to be, you know, other forms of procuring these systems and you know maybe public services need to um, utilize different forms of procurement where a colleague of ours was was telling me about um, an example of a, um, a Spanish um, public service I can't remember exactly the context now but instead of procuring you know, <coughs> a piece of software um, for you know for forever um, as it was out of the in that moment out of the factory mm. what they procured was the entire service with all of the updates mm. for a period of time and again there's still a period of time issue there yeah uh, but, but presumably at a much greater cost than the one stop perhaps piece of software yeah, maybe that's the problem yeah. and of course there's an economic issue here as well because it's it's not in the interests of it companies to produce software operating systems etc that will last for a long time yeah you know there's this concept of, of planned obsolescence you want items that you sell not to last forever so people come back to you and and, and buy more yeah it's a little bit more complicated in this particular issue with this particular issue because processing power is increasing all the time and, and you know a system designed for uh, you know a certain level of processing power then doesn't work properly or efficiently 
you know, as things improve. But I mean, this is really probably one area of of, of the economy that is the fastest uh, growing. So it's not really in the tech company's interest yeah. to produce long-standing mm-hmm. uh, software um, uh, or systems. Um, but then, of course, they probably no different to any other set of the economy yeah. there. If you're yeah. a car manufacturer, you don't want to produce a car that's going to last 30 years. <laughs> you want one that someone wants to change within five or six years so you can sell them another one. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, True. I think, particularly with the NHS, we need a conversation, a debate, that the NHS isn't just about doctors and surgeons and nurses, etc. That an integral part of providing a useful valuable nhs is you need to invest in it yeah and and i think if you look at the debate it's starting to come around to that so politicians are now not just talking about nurses and doctors as is the tradition are talking about robust it yeah yeah future proofing as far as you can have future proof hardware and software that sort of thing so true and another thing that's just come back into my mind i was thinking about that earlier is why you know, I don't know because, I, again, I'm not a technical, you know, I'm not a cybersecurity expert or a software engineer. But one thing I don't understand is why are, why were certain systems in the NHS exposed to the Internet in the first place? You know, if you, a lot of government uh, systems are completely, you know, the, the Internet is run on one part of it. Yeah. And the data is held elsewhere, and certain certain things are just not reachable, mm. you know, uh, f- from from an open internet connection. And I think that's well, that's an interesting question. Yeah. Why there isn't that yeah. ring ring fence? And of course, in the system that they planned, you would have needed connectivity because the idea was that you 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 know you're you're from Swansea. You, you visit Newcastle and you have an accident and they can just type in your name yeah. and your medical records right. are there. Right. Then you would need that. But, of course, that system, as you said, was 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 disbanded after mm. a, a few months, I think, a very short period of time anyway. So it might well be, um, you know, a good idea, and hopefully people are thinking about this at the moment, yeah. to have those sort of those fire breaks between mm-hmm. um, the data, etc., um, and the internet, so that anything that comes through the the internet uh, is cannot affect your yeah your MRI scans, your MRI you know, your data systems actual, yeah. yeah systems that you need to to run the hospital on the ground you know yeah. sh- shouldn't you know you shouldn't have to cancel operations because there's been a data breach yeah you know, come on um, I saying this as a completely <laughs> being a complete novice to <coughs> the issue. But I mean, it does it, it does seem to make perfect logical sense to to protect the most vulnerable aspects. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. as anyone who knows anything about cybersecurity or IT will tell you, but anything that's connected to the internet has a certain vulnerability. So you know that might be an issue that yeah. hopefully the policymakers within the NHS are, are considering at, at the moment. Well, I, do we know what's happened? Have they? Of these of the NHS patched the problem, or has the problem gone away because of this inadvertent fix that was found? Or 
is it continuing to have problems? Well, as far as I know, um, it hasn't been completely resolved, but because it's kind of fallen off the news cycle, um, we're not. I'm not too sure where we're at now. I certainly the the Royal um, London Hospital that I was talking about earlier. Um, they, you know, the effect was felt for for quite a few days. So when this interview was done, was on uh, Monday, uh, but the actual um, attack reached them on the nineteenth on the Friday. So on Monday they were still having you know operations cancelled, etc. So um, yeah, but, uh, hopefully it's um, a wake up call hmm. um, for people. Because um, I suppose the the full effects might not be known for several months. Yeah, I know it's a very dark way of thinking about it. But people who have missed their operation, you know, if you're thinking of something a progressive disease like cancer, etc., you know, time is of the essence. So the full effect might not be felt for several months. Uh, but as you said, hopefully, lead the powers to be, the policymakers, to look at this issue and, and take IT security a little more seriously. Uh, when it comes to these critical uh, examples of infrastructure like the like the NHS, one uh, one thing I would like to ask you about yeah. is who did this? Who was responsible? Why did they do this? Uh, well, of course it was North Korea. Um, <laughs> no, uh, it's always a state actor, isn't it? They, you know, there's always someone claiming it was Russia or China or whatever. This time, Sinmantec has. Sinmantec? Uh, Sin I never know how to say it. They're a pretty big uh, cybersecurity company, one of the um, major uh, multinationals in the cybersecurity industry. Um, they, they came out saying that it was very likely North Korea. Um, they didn't say for sure, but they, you know, there was a lot of media coverage. Certainly, all of the major UK outlets, everything from the sun to, you know, more serious uh, broadsheets, they all ran headlines that basically seemed to say it was definitely North Korea. Um, but yeah, I'm not entirely convinced. <laughs> so, so why then North Korea? You mentioned them, the usual suspects, when you think yeah. of state-sponsored um, cyber yeah. espionage or whatever you want to call it. It's usually the Russians or the Chinese. Uh, so why particularly do they think that this time is the North Koreans? Yeah, so apparently where the cyber, some cybersecurity researchers looked at the code behind the malware and um, it, it, it kind of has, it's structured in such a way that they believe um, is very similar and would only, uh, you know, only someone who had intimate knowledge of some of the some of the coding tactics used by a particular North Korean um, uh, hacking group um, w would have been able to, des to design the malware like that. So I was just trying to find, uh, find out what the name of this group is. Oh, here we go. It's the Lazarus Group. So they, they are kind of credited with that Sony hack that happened a few mm. years back that was pretty major. So that's the kind of scale we're talking about. Um, and this is a group which is understood to uh, be state-sponsored. Right. Um, so that's... Um, also, although, actually, this is it. I just remembered when I was reading about this. It's funny because Simon Tech says, OK, it looks like the Lazarus group. But at the same time, they were kind of saying, however, because 
it wasn't they didn't steal any intellectual property or anything like that uh, they think it may have been like a a splinter group or something right. so it's, it's kind of basically i feel like they've done it for to, to get the headlines out you know because if if it was a state actor or state sponsored organization you wonder what the benefit was hundred thousand pound in in bitcoin revenue exactly. um which might be useful to an individual but to a large organization or state is, is nothing and you know why pick something like this because if they knew presume they did that it was only a vulnerability with windows 7 yeah you would think the sort of the big high-end targets yeah. in a state yeah uh, would be using far more sophisticated and updated uh, version so other than the dis- this is what we can do type rationale it's difficult yeah. to see yeah. a, a, what benefit there really is yeah. to a state uh, a state actor in, in, in doing this but as you said North Korea is a, probably as good a person <laughs> or good as entity to blame as anyone yeah. I, I yeah. suppose yeah. I feel yeah. like this is something that the you know cyber security industry experts will discuss um, you know not not officially, but through unofficial channels. You know, you see it in blogs quite a lot. This this tendency to blame the state actor, it basically means that, it, you know, it takes away some of the responsibility, perhaps, of, of the security firms themselves. Because, yeah. you know, if you're dealing with a hacker in the bedroom, that's yeah. one thing. But if, you know, if, if you are attacked by another state, that's, you know, that's yeah. cyber war, you know, it's, I guess it, takes away some of that responsibility and it makes it more palatable then in the media you know for, in terms yeah. of you know if they have if they fail to secure the systems then you know so if you were being cynical about it <laughs> which you are yeah. then you would say that the, the sort of it the cybersecurity sector has a vested interest in then pushing the blame always well, yeah. towards yeah. Uh, state actors yeah um you know I, to say well you know how can we possibly cope against the might of the People's Republic yeah, of China yeah, or the yeah, Russian yeah. Federation, etc. Yeah, definitely. And of course, the media play a role in that because I don't know if you remember when the Talk Talk hack happened. Um, the first uh, kind of reporting of it was very much geared towards terrorism yeah. and state actors. And then and it turned out it was... Teenage boy in rural Wales or <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Was yeah. yeah, there were yeah. a bunch of teenagers yeah. you know, who, who were actually responsible for it. And Given that this malware was exploiting uh, a vulnerability that was widely known, publicly known, and it was also using code that clearly wasn't that expertly put together if it had a kill switch in it. Mm. I mean, really, when you think about it, you don't really need that much resource to deploy something, an attack like this. And if it was a teenage boy or someone similar, Mm. £100,000 for a relatively small amount of work is not a bad not a bad day's work. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was one a cry. <laughs> so do we think we'll ever know who or what did this? Yeah. Um, or is it going to be like, you know, does the light go off when you shut the fridge door? Is it going to be one of those things that we'll yeah, never really yeah, know yeah. the answer to? I, I, I'm not sure that we will know. I guess it depends on whether they can shift that money as well. Because mm. I'm guessing those... Bitcoin wallets are being watched pretty, hmm. pretty um, closely by the authorities. And if it was 
we've talked about state actors, we've talked about individuals. If there was somewhere in between, say a, a hacktivist organisation, uh, etc., you think by now they would have owned up yeah, to gain it. the, the yeah. publicity. So True. I think possibly we could rule out that middle ground sort yeah. of culprit yeah. and, and place yeah. it at either the individual level or at, yeah. The, yeah. at the state level. Because if you're doing something for publicity, you need to declare that it was you or it's yeah. pointless doing it for, yeah. for yeah. publicity. So True. And I guess it, it, but all of this always highlights this issue of uh, enforceability mm. of, of uh, you know, uh, computer misuse offences um well this this there's a there's a newish section added into the computer misuse act uh, which was designed specifically to deal with this sort of thing it refers to creating a risk of uh, of serious injury injury mass, uh, disruption of those sorts of things so i mean if the person could be found we've certainly got the legal uh, tools offences to to charge prosecute etc uh, but of course, as ever in cybercrime, I'm sure it's something we'll come back to. Uh, it's finding the person is the key, not necessarily the, a lack of a legal yeah. tool to to combat the behaviour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're talking about uh, Section 3ZA? 3ZA, that's yeah, the one. Of the Computer Misuse yeah. Act. Mentioned. Anyone would think you taught cybercrime. <laughs> <laughs> I learned from the best. Um so you reckon this incident might... Because it's never been used, right? Or... No, it's new anyway, or newish, and uh, it hasn't been used yet. But if a person could be found, I think this would be a suitable case with mm. the language used, you know, the serious threat of, of yeah, um, yeah. Um, significant damage. And significant damage is defined as things like national security, economic well-being, loss of life, Etc. Yeah, because you don't actually have to show a loss of life as long as you created a, a threat yeah. of loss of life. And clearly, yeah. by disrupting the NHS, yeah. that obviously creates yeah. a threat. So, yeah. I think if yeah. a person could be found and they were either in jurisdiction or could be extradited from somewhere, uh, we would have the offence to deal with them. But as I said, as ever, it's finding the person yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, responsible. Of course, if it's a state actor, uh, and we don't know that it isn't, yeah. uh, then there's, you know, that's not there's nothing really that can be done about that. So I don't. I think probably you're right. We'll <laughs> maybe never really know yeah. uh, uh, who's responsible yeah, uh, for it. it. Awesome. Well, I think we've come to the end of. This, yeah, uh, I think I think, podcast, I or think unless you want to add anything else, I or? think we've uh, I think we've flogged uh, <laughs> that story for all it's worth. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, we have. Yeah. Uh, there's a, some uh, some other uh, uh, there's a podcast about uh, cybersecurity which I listen to actually from the other side of the pond. Um, they're very it's a more technical podcast. It's more about aspects and, and stuff but uh, it was <laughs> uh, it was very funny because one of the things they said is that someone and I don't know who I did I should have taken that reference someone worked out that there was actually more media stories about one a crime than there were actually infections <laughs> which is uh, I think it's an interesting yeah. uh, insight um anyway well um brilliant uh, all that's left to do now is our little bit of free advertising at the end um, of the podcast so uh, I've got two things 
Uh, first of all, if you're in the South Wales area, uh, next Friday, the 2nd of June, we've got Jamie Bartlett, who is from the Think Tank Demos, coming to uh, Swansea University to give a talk about his new book, which was out on May 18th. It's called Radicals, Outsiders, Changing the World, uh, where he follows around um, uh, a bunch of people from very, very distinct political persuasions and kind of examines uh, uh, how these fringe political ideas may or may not become mainstream. So that's one. And the other one is the Cyber Network Conference, which is happening also here at the College of Law um, at Swansea Uni. It's between the 11th and the 12th of September, and it's an interdisciplinary conference for PhD researchers and early career researchers uh, researching the digital space across uh, disciplines, you know, be it legal, social, health or computer sciences. So it's, uh, we're hoping to create this network of researchers uh, looking um, at the, the different impact of, of, of the internet and the digital um, on across these areas. So. And the, the Jamie Bartlett talk, yeah. and I can highly recommend him, I've listened to him talk before, he's a very accomplished, lively, interesting speaker. How does one go about uh, booking, booking a that's place? That's a very good question. Uh, so if you search on Eventbrite for Jamie Bartlett uh, or even events in Swansea, you should be able to find it. It's a free event, uh, but it is uh, uh, ticketed and tickets are going fast. There are still some available, so if you're listening, uh, go and book it now. Quick. Okay. Great. <laughs> cool. Well, that's goodbye from us, and uh, see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> okay. So, so where are we now with the? With the ransomware, uh, is it con is it continuing to? <laughs> Sorry about that. Can you change me to give me a South African accent or something exotic? That's recording, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, one thing that we forgot to do what? at the start, which I can, if we do it now, mm. I can splice it, mm. is to say like today's date and maybe like this is the first ever episode or something mm. like that. Well, you can do that, can you? <laughs> Was that recorded? Yeah. Oh. All of that stuff was recorded. <laughs> what stuff? <laughs> oh, oh. I've seen nothing incriminating. Not yet. Not yet, no. Okay, I'm going to stop recording now. Right, you, you can say things, incriminating things now. Go on. <laughs> it's not recording. <laughs> I've got nothing left to say now. <laughs>